0: I'm trying. I'm trying. It's not like I'm not trying, Rohinsky. Okay. I'm trying hard. Live
1: from Beit Shemesh and broadcasted around the world, you are listening to the From Entrepreneur Podcast with your host, Naham Klegman. Interviews and advice from Jewish entrepreneurs from around the world. Listen, Listen. learn, be Masliach.
0: Welcome to episode 52 of the From Entrepreneur podcast, and I have a very exciting guest. They're actually sitting across from me here in Ramat Bay, I want to welcome to the show Joseph Bornstein from CauseMatch. Joseph, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, it's fantastic. First of all, I'd love to do, when you do the face-to-face interviews, it's a lot better. You know, you get to, to see the person in the flesh, and uh, it's, you know, it's, the podcasts always come out better, and so it's great to have you here. Thank you for coming out. Uh, so cause Match. So what I'd like to do, first of all, I'll just give an introduction about what cause Match is. And actually, well, I'll let you give the introduction about, let's say, the 30-second pitch about what Cause Match is. Then we'll get a little bit into your background, where you're from, how you got the idea and stuff. And then we'll take it from there. And uh, usually, actually, we prepare for my podcast episodes before. But there was no time for preparation because of Purim. So we're just going to do this... Uh, i Al Rega Ajas, but I'm sure it's going to come out fantastic. And actually, some of the interviews I've done where there was no preparation came out better. But then again, that could be asking you something that could be a little scary. You're up for that?
1: Absolutely. All
0: right, let's 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 do it. So give us a little bit background. What is our little uh, pitch? What is uh, CauseMatch?
1: Great. So CauseMatch is a digital fundraising platform for nonprofits and social causes. And we do all sorts of different style of fundraising, whether it's crowdfunding, using matching funds, uh, a recurring gift campaign, etc. And uh, in addition to providing that platform and the, uh, the tools for the nonprofit to do the online fundraising, we also provide fundraising mentorship and in addition to that, creative production for the campaign. Most nonprofits are fantastic at the good work that they do. But online marketing is not their expertise. So we have an in-house creative team that works directly with the nonprofit to make sure that they're telling their story and executing, communicating their campaign in a way that's inspiring and exciting for people to become a partner in creating change by supporting that incredible nonprofit.
0: Excellent. So it's more than just, hey, here's a platform, go up and do your thing. You actually get in very hands-on with the clients.
1: Bidouk. It's much more than just, you know, GoFundMe, Kickstarter, Razoo. that's just a passive piece of technology. What we're doing is we're blending human creativity, know-how, and experience along with the power of technology to really provide that hands-on experience to make sure that nonprofits are executing a high-impact campaign that's going to help them achieve their goals.
0: Excellent. So I've come across Cause Match a couple of times in the past, but uh, I just got to intimately know them uh, and your team, which is awesome. Recently, I, I worked on the campaign for uh, Dan, Rabbi Dan Roth, Torah live, where they were successful in raising over $200,000 through your platform. And so I actually got to be a little hands-on with you guys and, you know, uh, speaking to members of your team, I said, wow, you know, this is something I definitely uh, want to get involved in somehow on some level. So I know we have a meeting afterwards to talk about uh, how we could collaborate on some things. But let's go a little bit back. I mean, obviously, you're living here in Israel, but your, your English is pretty perfect. So why don't we get a little bit of your background? Where were you born, where you were you raised, where you went to school, and leading up to how we got to CauseMatch?
1: Okay, great. Um, so I was born in New York, uh, Brooklyn, New York, like most <laughs> Jews out there. Uh, but when I was about five years old, we moved to Ashland, Oregon.
0: Wow! Yeah. So I didn't see that coming.
1: Yes. So that's Southern Oregon. It's hippie yuppie land. Uh, very quaint little town.
0: Your, sh- your father was a shliach. Like what? How? What, what uh, brought you to Oregon?
1: So I'm a I'm a Baltuva. So my father and my mother. My father is a poet. And my mother is nice. a painter. And uh, Ashland's a university town. Beautiful country. And uh, pretty much my brother got mugged and that was in brooklyn wasn't the greatest place in the 80s Mm. and uh that was kind of the last straw and convinced my family okay let's let's go out west it'll be nearer to our parents and uh because of that we we moved out to ashland oregon Oregon. yeah
0: (laughs) so that's great so when you were five so how long were you in oregon for
1: i was in oregon until i went off to college and Went to Whitman College in Southeast Washington. It's a small liberal arts school.
0: Mm-hmm. And what did you uh, study in? What was your? I was a philosophy major. Really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so at this point, you weren't a baltuba yet, right? No. So, how did you get from a philosophy major to, uh, to from kite?
1: Yes. Yeah, so after college. I ended up moving to Guatemala actually in really? Central America. <laughs> see this story
0: see this is why like we didn't do any prep on this because you're just <laughs> blowing me away this story. Yeah. I think I got this guy from Brooklyn, runs like a huge organization, helps Sedakas living in Eric Israel and I'm and you're like, I lived in Guatemala. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah. tell so okay, Guatemala.
1: Yeah, so how, how I got to Guatemala was pretty much after high school I took a gap year. Uh, which is something that a lot of people in the secular world do after high school, before you go off to college. Okay, let's explore the world. Let's visit some other country or work, something like that. So I took a gap year, traveled with my friends from high school throughout Central America, became very close friends with a person named Alix Fermin, who was a native Nicaraguan. I, don't, I know Alex. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know how much you know about uh, fishing in the third world, but unfortunately, it's a very it's a very abusive and very hard dynamic for for people who are impoverished in the third world. So Alex, for example, was using his scuba gear was the same equipment that we use to fill our tires, like for air compression. And one day, the equipment broke, like it does, sadly, for many farmers or many fishermen all over the world. And Alex was underwater scuba diving, and the equipment broke, and unfortunately, he passed away. Oh, wow. So that was the first time growing up in hippie, yuppie Ashland with all of these you know, liberal ideals and social justice that those ideas really gained. It, it just became visceral. I mm-hmm. lost somebody that I loved essentially because he was poor, and mm. that made a profound impact on me. Because of that, we did a housing project to help his family to have a long-term. What
0: year is this? This is in the nineties. That
1: was look? no, that was uh, like two thousand four. Right,
0: I was gonna say you look you look pretty young still. So yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. So uh, so yeah, we did a housing project where I had a, this idea. Look, it's a, his hometown's a pretty. Pretty good touristy type of place. If we build them a home, they own some land. If we build them a home, then maybe they can have a a sustainable form of livelihood by renting out that home. Hmm. So raise the money. A few of my friends, we flew down there. A couple of them were contractors. They knew how to build. So we built them the home. And that was the first time that we discovered, wow, this, we can actually make a difference if we're passionate about something. So after that, whatever, it's a long story, but we eventually realized, okay, let's move to Central America. Let's start a nonprofit together. And I was doing uh, sustainable agriculture in Guatemala.
0: Wow. So this is after college. This this was before,
1: this was after college. After college, we moved down there after doing a number of projects. You and your friends. My friends and I, yeah and uh in terms of how I got to becoming religious uh, pretty much I met my w- who's the woman who's now my wife on birthright <laughs> uh Taglit and I was planning a fundraiser and got in touch with her, and pretty much she recommended she encouraged me to explore my Jewish identity a little bit more at the time I was meditating and you know doing everything that was not Jewish right. And uh, I loved it. It was just, it was an amazing, uh, it, everything that I did that was Jewish just felt like home. Wow. It felt right. I felt a connection. Yeah. So uh, our head of agronomy, his name is Trinidad Racinos, he, uh, he saw how much I loved it and how much I was connecting with all of these Jewish practices. So we were sitting in McDonald's together and I was exploring the possibility of making a trip to Israel. And he said, you know, a Jew, or he said, I'm sorry, not a Jew, he said, a man is defined by his roots. And right now you're exploring your roots. And those roots will really guide your entire life. If you don't know what your roots are and you're having this uh, explorative process in your life, that's more important, infinitely more important than what you're doing down here. Even though I love having you here helping my people. Wow. And so uh, he was a born again Christian, is a born again Christian. And He said, uh, "You know, the Jewish people—they're the first family of God. The Christians were the adopted family of God. If you have a chance to go to Israel and discover your roots, you've got to take it."
0: Wow! So you ended up going to. So your wife was your future wife was living in Israel at the time.
1: She no, she had gone to Neve though Neveh Yerushalayim.
0: Not like my wife. Yeah, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> like a lot of people's wives. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. And so, yeah, she she was living in New York, going to Fordham Law. And I had met her, obviously on birthright. Had stayed in touch with her for a while, and uh, yeah. So it was her encouragement that I even sort of turned over this leaf in my life.
0: So where'd you go to when you uh, got to Israel?
1: Aishat Torah. Yeah.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. And I guess so. Then so okay. So now you're in Aish. In Eventually, I guess you go back. You meet your wife. You bring her to Israel, or you got married.
1: So I was in Aish for. A few, like let's see, let's see, it was like uh, two months, maybe. I went back to Guatemala because I was a co-founder of a nonprofit. I couldn't just up and leave. Right. So went back to Guatemala. Continued to explore my Judaism. It stuck. It wasn't just uh, you know I was in a in a dream world at Ashator in Israel, and eventually came back to yeshiva. Started learning full time. Passed the nonprofit off to my other co-founders and my wife came on a visit to to visit Israel and we decided to get coffee together and uh we saw that there really was uh by then I was observant and uh we saw that there really was a connection and the rest is history
0: beautiful beautiful so where where do you uh where do you live now French Hill you live in French Hill yeah okay so then so wow so so I th- <laughs> you know before meeting meeting you you know, I thought that, hey, we got this yeshiva guy, came up with an idea, says, hey, let's just start a thing. But this has actually been in your blood for, for many years, this helping society, helping people, uh, something that drives you. So how did you, okay, so you got married, you were learning uh, full-time in KOLO, whatever it was. How did you get to CauseMatch?
1: Sure. So, so yes, I've been fundraising pretty much since I was 17 years old. It's been uh, in my bones, I guess. And at the time, I was working with Jerusalem U. We had a leadership program called Core 18, and we were trying to help young entrepreneurs launch their ventures.
0: Social and social entrepreneurship or J-
1: Jewish entrepreneurs trying to do things to help the Jewish people. Okay. And we really wanted to fast track their ventures as much as possible and to get them to really own their ventures. So I had an idea. Let's do a crowdfunding campaign. Crowdfunding is wonderful training. I had to do crowdfunding for my nonprofit. These fellows should do, can do crowdfunding for their own. They can raise some of their own funds, and it's a great education. And then we gamified the experience by offering them prize money. First fellow, you know, the fellow who raises the most money, they get $1,800. The fellow who raises from the most individual donors they also get a prize of $1,800. We had all of these different prize categories in order to gamify the, the fundraising experience to motivate them and to motivate the donors. Hmm. And it worked. (laughs) It was amazing. It was so exciting for not every single fellow, but a good chunk of the fellows took it very seriously. And it was a very empowering tool for them. So that was a moment in life. You know, often we have our track we know what we're doing. Oh, I'm 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 doing this. I'm a venture coach, or this is my job, and, and you're just moving forward on your track, and you're locked into that track. Maybe it was because I was teaching entrepreneurship at the time, which is all about taking your eye off the ball. Right. And I said, wow, that was pretty special, actually. So I started to do all this research into matching grants and challenge grants and, and prizes, and I found that the data is, is really quite incredible, that doing matching funds and offering prizes for you know, to, to incentivize donors and things of that sort can have a profound impact on the success of a fundraising campaign. So, for example, a Yale University professor did a study, and he found that if you mention matching funds, people are about 19% more likely to contribute than just a STOM campaign. Wow. So what if you built a platform that gamifies matching and really gives people a live, hands-on experience of seeing their impact multiplied. So with that, that was kind of the genesis of Cosmatch, and I really have to give Rabbi Shore credit here. He he took a risk in me and and ran a couple campaigns to test out the platform. And Baruch Hashem, they went well. And since then, we've just been growing ever since. So what what year was this? That was 2015.
0: Okay, so 2015. So you're starting this, but you're not a programmer, so. You're sitting, you know, I guess you're in cola this time, right? You you, you probably didn't make a million dollars off your nonprofit until this point. Right. So uh, how did you get the funds or how did how'd that process work from, okay, I have this idea. I know what I want to do. How did you actually go about building it?
1: So my wife and I ended up investing some of our wedding money, some okay. of our savings, because we believed in it. And my friend, uh, Shalom, Shalom Sfi, jumped in and helped build the first iteration of the website
0: he's and a pro he's a programmer
1: he's a programmer okay and through the power of wordpress you don't need to be a super advanced programmer to get something together right and actually it was total siata de but we found an amazing programmer on fiverr fiverr.com <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, an israeli company it's an israeli company <laughs> so his name is chris he's based in india and he's a true entrepreneur himself and deeply passionate about Cosmatch. And he really grew with the company.
0: Beautiful. So, how many people are actually working on Cosmatch today?
1: We've got a team of 14 now.
0: 14. And and your offices are where?
1: So, we have an office in Yerushalayim, and then we also have a branch in Tel Aviv. We work in Tel Aviv.
0: So, now Cosmatch, I mean, the, the campaigns obviously I've seen have, have always been. Um, uh towards the campaigns are for from organizations is the idea the goal or do you have causes that are outside specific uh I guess from applications
1: yeah absolutely i'd say about 10% of our campaigns are not in the jewish or from world and ultimately we do want to be a global brand but mm-hmm. at the same time obviously israel and jewish causes are are close to our hearts and and i imagine will be a, a big part of causematch for the
0: long haul beautiful beautiful so, okay, so what was your first actual, I mean, you said Rabbi Shore, you did something, I guess, with Aish, but what was your first, after the testing, what was your first, like, big client that you said, okay, we're going to take this, and, and how did that work out? So, our
1: first, I'd say, breakaway client was United Hatzalah. Mm-hmm. It was a million-dollar campaign. Wow. Yeah, that was like, okay, there's really something here, we're going places, and, uh, and that, was, that was, I'd say, a turning point in the course of cause match
0: and was that a uh, matching campaign
1: yeah it was a three-to-one matching campaign and the goal was to raise the funds so that one out of two united hutzala medics could have a life-saving defibrillator
0: Hmm. and was the goal reached
1: it was reached and we got the to the bonus round also so yeah it was very exciting
0: beautiful so now I see, that you know, you have different. It's not just, uh, as you said, you, you know, you're you're basing a lot of your what you're doing based on uh, stats and data, and you know, the 19% more if you have a, a, a matching. But you're doing other types of applications as well, right? And, and I guess it comes down to a science. Is it better to run a 24-hour campaign, a 36-hour campaign, uh, a, a one-week campaign? Is it better to, you know, if you have matching funds or if you have? I know you have a new uh, system now where you do monthly. The, idea, the mm-hmm. goal is to get people to contribute monthly, sort of a set-and-forget uh, type of uh, application. What other applications uh, do you have, uh, and what do you see that works best, and I guess towards what types of um, nonprofits? Right,
1: so that that's actually a really important question. Our philosophy is that there's many different types of nonprofits. Every nonprofit has different needs, resources, opportunities. Sometimes their social capital is community appreciation. Sometimes it's an email list. Sometimes it, it's a bit of both. Sometimes the organization has lots of human resources to invest, sometimes very little. So what we do is we work with the nonprofit to identify what types of campaigns are going to help ensure that they're able to reach their organizational goals. Sometimes that means, you know, a really intense all-out 24-hour campaign where you're throwing call you know, call centers all over the country and maybe even internationally. Sometimes that means doing a 30-day campaign where you're sending out emails. If you, have a, if you have a heavy email list or an online presence, it's just a reality that you need time to target and to retarget and to optimize, A-B test, et cetera. So in terms of fundraising tools that we have, we have our flagship product is Matching Campaigns. Then we have activity-based fundraisers. That could be a -a bike-a-thon.
0: Oh, your software can actually handle bike-a-thons and that type of of, uh, stuff. Yeah,
1: bike-a-thon, walk-a-thon, whatever activity-oriented campaign you want to do, and you can have different teams, that sort of thing. In addition to that, there's, as you mentioned, a recurring gift campaign that can be very effective if you're a nonprofit that has continued programming throughout the course of the year. So there the ask is... You know, don't help us just complete this one initiative, but we need a predictable budget. Be a sustainer. Help us have a enduring budget that we can count on. Uh, then there's non-matching crowdfunding. There's life events campaigns. If somebody's doing a bar mitzvah or some other simcha, that individual can do a fundraiser on behalf of the nonprofit. There's oh, all sorts of different tools, and and really the annual portfolio of of an organization's digi- digital fundraising should be a a mixture of these different tools to keep it fresh and to reach different types of people which are in their contact database.
0: How, how many campaigns have you uh, run? Uh something
1: like 120, 130.
0: Oh wow. And do you do you have an idea of how much was actually raised? Hashem,
1: We've done about 24 million.
0: 24 million million raised in about 3 years. Or two years? Uh, two, more like two years, yeah. Wow. Wow, yeah. that's fantastic.
1: Yeah, for Hashem, it's been an exciting venture. So what's the dream?
0: What's the vision five years
1: from now? Five years from now, we hope to be servicing thousands of Amutot, many in Israel, but all over the world. And our aspiration is to be able, right now, the the financial sector and the enterprise sector are light years ahead of the nonprofit sector. And that makes sense because they're such a They're driven by money. Yeah, and there's (laughs) so much more money. So those enterprise clients are able to yield very high returns. Right. We view ourselves because we partner with every nonprofit that we work with. And so we're able to deeply understand the nuances, the needs, opportunities of each type of nonprofit. So our goal is to build a product suite that's algorithm based, data driven, leveraging machine learning along with human support just like we're doing right now and, and that human creativity component to build a suite of products that's on par with what we're seeing in the financial world and the enterprise world.
0: Beautiful. Beautiful. And you know what what it, it just to reiterate something you said earlier, and that is a lot of nonprofits, they're great at what they do. They have the heart and they have the passion for whatever goal they're trying to do, whether it's saving lives with the or, uh or uh, sharing Torah videos with Torah Live, creating, you know, top-quality content. But when it comes to running campaigns, you can't expect a nonprofit to all of a sudden have the Chachma and Das, even if they have the email list or they have, you know, social, me- social media presence, right? But to run a campaign like this, I mean, it takes a lot of work, a lot of effort, and a lot of knowledge. It's not just having the technology in place, but there's a lot of Chachma that goes into it. If you're a nonprofit, how long in advance should you start prepping for your actual launch?
1: Yeah, so actually I want, uh, I'll answer that in a sec, but I want to touch on something that you're, that you're raising. So that's actually a unique value of being in the position of a platform that's also a, a fundraising mentor to the nonprofit. Uh, so I'll give you an example of how we're able to leverage that experience. So let's say you want to send an email to your nonprofit your your donor base. And it's going to be a private letter in advance of the launch of the campaign asking them to pre-donate. You would think that maybe you should include like a screenshot of the video as clickbait to entice people to click on the video so that they'll so that you'll get more traffic to your donate page and they'll end up donating. However, the medium is the message, and in this case you're writing a very personal letter saying, you know, we're reaching out to you a select group of individuals and we're asking you to pre-donate in advance of you know the whole world getting this fundraising appeal so we saw that there was a 30 percent higher conversion rate for the for the letter that went out without the video wow because it felt like a personal message and that was the whole thrust and ethos of that letter to begin with and we only saw like a boost in a two percent click rate when we included the video so obviously it was much more valuable for that style letter and that communication material and its specific purpose to not use the video. So that's something that we're now, that data point, that A-B test, we're able to pass on to all of our other clients moving forward. So just one point of sort of, you know, the hachma that's required to launch a fundraising campaign, even a nonprofit that's very good at maybe telling their story PR online, it doesn't mean that they know how to Tell the story of a crowdfunding campaign specifically. It's a very specific type of story.
0: Right. A lot of nuances. And I guess, you know, if you're sending out 10 emails at different points in the campaign, you have to know what's the best style for and who and who the email is going out to, uh, I guess, to, uh, you know, to use that data, to, to have that knowledge, which is what you guys have, I guess, from running all these different campaigns. Exactly.
1: And, you know, should... Where should the donate button go? How many donate buttons in the email? What color should the button be? Should it be a button or should it be text with an embedded link like you and I would normally send each other in an email, you know, not a button? Right. You know, all of these different questions are all things that we can A, B test and get real data on and then provide those exact processes and templates.
0: Let's answer the preparation question. Then sure. I have a couple more on that. So Beautiful. If, if you're a nonprofit, how long in advance should you start prepping for your campaign?
1: So... The fastest campaign that we've ever had to launch was 30 hours. That was crazy.
0: Oh, my gosh. What, yeah. from like, hey, we we're launching this in 30 hours to launching it in 30 hours?
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that was very intense, including, <laughs> by the way, production of the video.
0: Oh, my. Just that takes usually uh, at least a week.
1: Yeah, we hustled. It oh, was, my gosh. Yeah. It was, it was a big campaign for an important client. Uh, we Thank God we were able to pull it together. Generally... We like somewhere between three to five weeks. Oh, that's it? Yep. I would
0: think it would take like months of preparation.
1: So maybe if you're doing like an international with call centers all over the world, something like that. But we find very often if you need more time to raise your matching funds, that might require a little bit more lead time. Mm -hmm. But very often in that about one month of preparation time, that's a good sweet spot for most organizations. Excellent. And the thing is, if you have too many months of preparation time, it's kind of like, when does anything actually need to get done? It's it's too far out to actually begin executing.
0: Hmm. Okay. So now one, one of the things we talked about, uh, and I get it, is the emails and the online marketing. But from what I've seen, I've worked on a few campaigns myself, call centers seem to be key, asking for that personal. So how do you help in terms of setting up call centers? Or do you what, how how far do you get involved with that? Because a lot of nonprofit organizations they may have, or a lot of like let's say yeshivas and seminaries may have a lot of alumni, right? But how do you have uh, how do you get them, and how do you teach them how to set up a call center?
1: Right. So exactly, not every nonprofit has an opportunity to pull together a, a corpse of volunteers. Not every you know united with Israel, they have an email list of six hundred thousand. But it's all online, so they don't necessarily have an opportunity to do a call center style campaign unless they want to hire people or find some partner. In terms of helping the call center get set up, that's, that's a process that requires really working with a project coordinator to help them understand what's going to be exciting and motivating to whatever community is that they're reaching out to. And then it's about how do you prepare your databases? How do you decorate your building and make this something that doesn't feel the benefit of bringing people together into a call center? Is you're creating social lubricant? You're making it something where all of a sudden fundraising that sounds you know really scary and hard, but you know decorate the building, throw some lechems in there, celebrate when somebody gets a donation, do a raffle, all of these different things you can leverage that collective experience and the the campaign feel of it mm-hmm. to make something that normally people think of as a little bit hard into something that's actually enjoyable and fun and empowering because there they are it's an amazing thing they're raising tour live wow we just raised two hundred thousand dollars it's gonna change the course of this organization in, in a very good way
0: right that's funny i remember growing up we used to have this uh, super sunday at the local Y i'm from Passaic and uh, that was it was people would come in for hours and they'd have like tons of different foods and, and gifts and they would come in and they just people would be on the phones making phone calls. Um, in terms of you're a nonprofit, let's say, what the, would you say the percentage of donations come from warm leads as opposed to total cold calls? Uh, I would imagine, obviously, it's higher if you have some sort of relationship with uh, your your donor base that you're targeting, with their phones and stuff. But you know, sometimes, let's say you have a donor base of 1,000 people, but you want to call 5,000 people, or you have an email list of, of, of 5,000, but you really want to email out to 30,000. And there's different ways to get different lists and stuff, but is it always worth it?
1: So what do you mean, is it always worth it? Meaning,
0: is it worth, uh, let's say, paying a few thousand dollars to get an email list uh, uh, of people uh, that really may rent. not know to rent a list for people, that, or to do an online campaign or you know, uh, advertise on Yeshiva World News or whatever you want to advertise. Does that bring, is it, can that bring in funds or is it really? So that's
1: a great question. So obviously the best is going to be your own email list first and foremost, and volunteers who are passionate about the work that you're doing for those volunteers to reach out to their own social networks and to mobilize those communities. After that, you get into the realm of marketing and online advertising. So there, it's very important that your content is going to speak to the emotional drivers of the community that you're reaching out to. And if possible, in addition to that, for you to be a recognized brand, Mm -hmm. if you can get both of those two together, very often you can see a return on investment and sometimes a pretty good one. I've seen, you know, the highest I've ever seen was something like five or seven times ROI. Oh, wow. Um, I have seen pretty consistently with some lists, you know, 1.4 times ROI, which is still, fantastic. still worth it. Right, Still yeah, worth it. I would right. even argue because every email list has a life cycle mm-hmm. that even a nonprofit that is breaking even, you could argue that that, that's worth it because you're breaking even. Yes, you did have to, exert but you're getting some. more awareness. You're getting there. more awareness, and those donors are not necessarily people who will never donate again. A certain percentage of those donate donors will continue to be part of your donor base True. over the
0: long haul. Right what what is um
1: i I just wanna sorry, yeah, I just please, wanna no, couch it and say though you need to be very careful about the email list that you're renting or if you're doing something a little more sophisticated with cross channel marketing where you're doing an article and banners et cetera et cetera, and sometimes you know if you're just doing an email blast alone, it's very risky, it's sort of like a shot in the dark mm-hmm. because it's just like one bullet and it's gone, and you don't know what's gonna happen right. So, therefore, it can be more beneficial to work with a firm that's going to do a certain number of articles and banner ads and there's more room to optimize. So, do you help
0: um, consult on that level with with the clients?
1: So, we we have developed a few partnerships with different marketing companies that we know well and like and know that they're going to do their absolute best to ensure that the client's going to get, you know, an ROI for their campaign.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. Let's talk a little bit about video. I know from a uh, Kickstarter, you know, the better the, the video and the better the quality, the more chances uh, someone actually uh, give a pledge. How important is a good quality video in these campaigns?
1: So video is, is king. Video is, wow. is Kickstarter, for example, they found that a crowdfunding campaign that has a video raises, I believe it was two times more money. It might have been even higher than that. Mm-hmm. Cisco Systems, a huge Internet company. Estimates that in the next five years, eighty percent of all content consumed online will be
0: video. Wow, wow, amazing! So, but you know, a lot of times, I mean, I just know from being out there that a good quality video can cost ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars for like a three minute video. But you find it that it's could die to spend that type of uh, money on it. So,
1: so a little shout out, we're here in Beit Shemesh, a shout out to Video Sparks. Uh, Oh yeah,
0: my boys, they were, they were our second uh, podcast episode. Okay, amazing.
1: So Morty and Amir, great guys. Amazing guys. They are our exclusive video production partner. They're wonderful. They're professional, talented, driven towards very high quality customer service. And so the videos that we do with them are very affordable I'd say 99% of the time it's under two thousand dollars. Oh wow! And very often more in the thousand in that type of zone, which is extremely affordable to a given to a nonprofit. A thousand sure. bucks, well, I know that's even. probably only
0: specifically for nonprofits because you know I've, I know that they they charge mo- a lot more because of their quality and service. Right for probably for profit. So companies. yeah.
1: So disclaimer: that's not for every single video <laughs> out there. It's exclusive for Cosmatch clients that get that discounted price on their video. And a lot of that's because we're doing so many videos with them that at a volume level, it makes sense. Right,
0: right, right. Amazing, amazing guys. And I've I've worked with them before and uh, really fantastic.
1: By by the way, I just want to say, in addition to that, you know, part of our creative team, we write the, we've, we've developed a formula and an understanding for what makes for a good crowdfunding video. We're able to see which videos are working, what's what's good, what's not, how long the video should be, where the call to action should be, should you open with a person talking directly to camera, or should you begin with some enticing B-roll, all of these different questions, we're able to track when people are falling off, which version of the video had a higher conversion rate, because we're A-B testing, et cetera. And so with that, we've developed our understanding that's all data-based off of what makes for a great crowdfunding video. And so our creative team, prepares the script and the storyboard that's part of every campaign package and then if they want they can you know work with video sparks to get their video produced or they can work with their own video person to get their video produced etc but that's another example of how important and valuable it is to really know how to tell the story and how to execute the campaign of your online fundraising
0: beautiful now what about uh I assume that uh, you one of your one of your business models is to take a percentage of sales or donations that come in because otherwise if you did it you know where they got a front of money, I'm sure it costs a lot more than uh, most nonprofits can afford. So do, do you take some sort of money up front or is it all basically commission based? How does that, how does that work?
1: Yeah, so it's all based off what the nonprofit raises. So we take 5 percent of the crowd funded money. By the way, that's not on the matching. We charge zero percent on matching if a nonprofit does a matching campaign, and yeah, it's based off what they fundraise. And in terms of the video, they can they can pay for that video. After I mean, so the I mean that actually
0: makes you uh, it shows that you're committed to the cause and to helping them succeed and doing everything that you can to help them succeed. So that's a actually a much more powerful model. And I assume that. You're just not. You're not able to take every single person that comes to you. It's gonna be something that you believe in that will be successful. So, if if they approach you and you guys accept them, there's a good chance that they would succeed.
1: Bid Duke. Yep, exactly. We're taking a certain amount of risk as well in the equation. Hundred percent.
0: I love that. I love the win-win for everybody and get everybody excited and on the same page. Exactly. Um, so, how many? The what would you say is the percentage of successful campaigns? You said you run about 120. Or so in the last couple of years, how many have, what's the percentage of uh, successful campaigns?
1: Sure. So we run two styles of campaigns. One is all or nothing, which is just what it sounds like. Uh, If you don't reach the goal, everything gets returned. Right. The other is keep what you raise, also what it sounds like. (laughs) Um, So for all or nothing campaigns, we've had one not succeed. So essentially a 99% success rate. Wow. In terms of keep what you raise... Uh, off the top of my head, I'd say something like eighty percent, something in that zone. Eighty, eighty-five percent are reaching their goal.
0: Amazing! That's, that's that's great percentages. Beautiful. All right, listen, this has uh, been absolutely fantastic. I'm pumped up. I want to run another ten campaigns with you. Uh um, let's it's, do it. It's uh, you know, and, and and as you said, you're only two years in. I mean, um, there's so, and you already have a staff of fourteen. There's so much more they could accomplish, and I'm sure you will accomplished especially you know you're your fundraising for a lot of uh organizations and stuff there's tremendous chlism involved not just uh the money so call it kavod and um i look forward to uh hearing more great stories more great success stories and personally uh you know working with you
1: okay great thanks so much for having me great honor to, to pleasure. speak with you Thank you for listening to the From Entrepreneur Podcast with Nahum Kligman. We hope you learned something valuable and will share this with your friends. For show notes, archives of previous episodes, and more information to help you start and grow your business, please visit our website,
0: www.fromentrepreneur.com. Listen,
1: learn, be Masliak.